Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Saul Van Burden. Saul is the head of technology for Wells Fargo, one of the world's largest banks with revenues exceeding $85 billion annually and with assets approaching $2 trillion. In this role, Saul leads a team of more than 40,000 information technology and security professionals and is responsible for all software development, IT operations, infrastructure and cloud enablement, and cybersecurity. Saul is also a member of the company's operating committee. Prior to joining Wells Fargo, Saul was the Chief Information Officer of Consumer and Community Banking at JPMorgan Chase. In this interview, we discuss the defensive and offensive roles the technology team runs, the company's 6S strategy, which stands for Skills, Secure, Stable, Scale, Speed, and Satisfaction, and Wells' three-pillared innovation strategy. We discuss Saul's view on quantum computing, the natural partnership between big banks and fintechs, and Wells Fargo's response to the pandemic. We also discuss some of the indelible marks Saul believes will and won't remain once we return to normal, or some semblance thereof, why we need to be careful that we are using artificial intelligence ethically, Saul's lessons for effective cross-cultural communication, and a variety of other topics. I wanted to share a quick message from our sponsor, Sykes. Sykes is a leading provider of multi-channel demand generation and customer engagement services, helping Global 2000 companies enhance touch points at every stage of the customer journey. To share some perspectives, I'll briefly turn it over to Ian Barkin, the company's chief strategy and marketing officer. Customers don't want and don't deserve a new normal. They deserve and want a better normal. At Sykes, we know this because we spend over 3 billion minutes a year listening to and serving customers of the world's leading brands. And with that much listening, you can't help but know what delights, what infuriates, and what drives customer behaviors and decisions. So, what is a better normal? We believe it's the delivery of a truly intelligent customer experience. The call to action has never been clearer for CIOs, CTOs, and the broader C-suite. New is not enough, and the time for tinkering has passed. The winning combination of technology, talent, and customer insight is how to create intelligent customer experiences and a truly better normal. To read more about intelligent customer experiences, check out sykes.com forward slash ICX. Thanks, Ian. And now on to our interview. Well, Saul Van Burden, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Peter, uh, pleasure is mine. Well, Saul, I, I thought we would begin with uh, your your role. You are the head of technology at Wells Fargo and Company. And uh, maybe you could take a moment and describe your purview to, to do so if you would. Peter, it's my pleasure to do that. Uh, the head of technology for Wells Fargo basically uh, entails all software development, uh, IT operations, uh, infrastructure and cloud enablement, uh, cybersecurity, and then all types of staff functions around that. We do that from the US and India mainly with a smaller premise that we have in uh, EMEA in the UK. Um, we have around 40,000 technologists. We run uh, a kind of 9 billion budget, which is a public number, so I can share it with you. And some people ask me the question, why is your title a head of technology and not global CIO or something that you would normally expect for these type of positions? Um, 
when I came in here, I had that same question and it was a very simple answer. Like the title for CIO and CTO are already given to layers and levels below me. So you will become the head of technology. Um, for me, it's not important, you know, the title of a role. It's how you act on that role and the responsibility that you have. Saul, you are, um, as you mentioned earlier, of, of Dutch uh, heritage, and you are someone who has worked in many different countries, uh, based now in the U.S., uh, but but based in many different countries across your career. And I'm curious, um, your own perspectives on the different cultures you know, there are different cultures company to company, even if they're across the street from each other and largely populated by people that live in the same, you know, same city. Uh, you have a cognizance of the differences of culture company to company, but also, uh, you know, country to country. Talk a little bit about how you think about, um, think about that in your own, uh, your own work life and uh, maybe some insights of, of, of the, 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 experience the advantage of having seen so many different kinds of cultures and maybe the how that might make you a bit more malleable in your own approach uh, as you join a new company. Thank you, Peter. And that's a, it's a, and it's not a, diff, it is a difficult question because when you start to talk about cultures, many people say, what is a culture? And it, for me, it's important to have that experience in a, in a couple of ways. I've been working indeed in roles where it was stretching from Canada to Australia, from China to Argentina. And I've dealt with many different cultures. And what I notice are a few things and things that I also learned from different bosses, basically. So one, um, pay respect to other cultures, but also expect that that other culture has respect for you. So sometimes we see as uh, showing up somewhere, we need to completely redefine ourselves to fit in into that culture. And I'm against that model in terms of of course, I need to avoid stepping on toes. You need to avoid blunt uh, insults that that a, a culture token uh, stands for. At the same time, you can expect that somebody else has respect for your own culture as well. And in all the years that I've been in, in foreign countries and townals and sessions, I always started to say by, uh, I'm, I'm Dutch. So you know that Dutch people are speaking Dutch. That means they're pretty direct and sometimes even blunt. I can offend you, Peter, but you can never offend me. And that last sentence just makes it so, um, let's say, normal again to everybody. Like, okay, I already apologize for my behavior and my culture, but they don't need to apologize to me. You understand what I say? Yes. yes. But I do that because I want them to know what the culture stands for that I come from. And um, not that that is central for everyone, but like I respect you and how you think, I hope that other people also respect how I think. That is, that is one. The second thing is for me, culture is often very close to diversity and the topic of diversity. And diversity is often taken from what I call external tokens, the color of your skin, the religion that you believe in, the nation that you come from. I try to look at the eyes of people and the eyes are reflecting the soul of people. So it's often the mirror of your soul, not the soul, but the soul. And a soul is just a bundle of energy and personality. And when you connect on that level, regardless in which country you are, with, with, with what type of people you have to deal with, if you connect on that level, the, culture, the cultural differences are still there, but they fall away because you connect on that level that is, has no color of skin. 
It has no gender. It has no nationality. It has no religion. It's just that energy and that personality that defines you, Peter, or that defines me. And I've learned that on that level of connection, you can create anything. And then last but not least, shared objectives and shared values bring you a long, long way. So it, it doesn't matter that you're different from backgrounds. You connect on that level that I just said, like on soul level rather than on instrumental level. And then if you have shared values, shared principles or shared objectives, you can take the troops with you to whatever the destination will be. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, yours is uh, such a, a large organization, Wells Fargo is, and at its heart, uh, it, it, information is really kind of the the coin of the realm. Uh, information, data, um, you know, all that you do for your clients, uh, both commercial as well as uh, consumers. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, some aspects of your current strategy, some of the things that are currently on the roadmap that you and the team are working on. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Peter. And the strategy is, is basically something that we put together last year uh, when I started in this role. And we first asked ourselves, what is good looking like for a technology group? And we basically defined two roles that a technology team needs to play very well. The first role is what you could call the defensive role, is the trusted operator role. And this is all about making sure that the plant runs, that the things go. The second role is a offensive role. And this is what we call the business enabler role, where it's more about how do you decrease risk for the bank? How do you maximize revenue? And how do you get better return on investments? Those two roles, if you put them on your minds like a football team, American football team, I say now, where you have the defensive team and the offensive team, but the only difference is we are one team and we have to play both roles at the same time. Then we deconstructed both roles into a few pillars that you really need to do very well to be the trusted operator or to, to be that business enabler. Um, and the pillars became strategic pillars with plans around and metrics. And I will shortly introduce them to you. Trusted operator is for all, for us, all about having the skills, the skills to run the current set of technologies as well as the future set of technologies. So this is all about upskilling and reskilling your workforce. Then the second pillar is all about security, because the, you could say the only thing that a bank sells is trust, the fact that it's safe to have your stuff with the bank. So security comes down to cybersecurity, the controls that you need to have in place, and so forth. And then the third pillar is stability. With 90% of all transactions taken digitally, when the digital app or the online desktop version is down, the bank is down. So you need to have a stable shop. That stability is created by way more and better resiliency. I can talk about that later. Um, it's all about automating the processes on the IT operations side. Uh, and a couple of things that are and have to do with rationalization of your applications. So trusted operator, defensive play, it's all about skills, security, and stability. Then you have that other role, the business enabler, maximizing revenue, decreasing risk, and creating return on investment. This is all about scalability. And scalability means for us that if the volumes go up and down, like in a bank happens, you don't want to sit on those step changes of infrastructure that you need to build out for 100 million just to tip off the peak level of a certain transaction. No, you want to be able to have on-demand scalability and scale. 
The second thing is speed. Banks are slow. That's just a statement that I make here, but normally large banks like VR, it takes 60, 65 weeks to deliver a project. It can be much faster. It can be done in 18 to 22 weeks, comparable scope. How do you do that? By basically taking off and taking out all the handoffs between all the different teams that are doing analysis and then the first product requirements and then the prioritization with finance teams and then it goes to a PMO and then it gets a project leader and an IT intake and IT intake to design, to technical design, to developers, to test, to production. If I sum it up, you already hear the 60 weeks right there. (laughs) Well, if you have a multifunctional team where the analyst with the product idea sits down with the engineer who's supposed to build it as a feature, who's also the one who can directly put it in production because he or she is using DevOps tools like we have today, you take away that whole notion of handoff, handoff, handoff. The second thing is automate every step along the way. So speed is a very important pillar to maximize revenues, to be faster than the rest of the market and to have a better return on investment. And then last but not least, the the last S that I call the 6S strategy is satisfaction because you can do all the other things. We can have the right skills, we're safe and secure, we're stable, we have scalable and, and speedy type of solutions. But if the end customer, meaning the external customer or client is still not happy with the app and the uptime of the app, or our internal users are still not happy with whatever we provide a service to them, we have failed. So satisfaction is for us the cornerstone of the strategy. Now, for each and every S, skills, Dalida, we have plans, we have roadmaps, we have initiatives, and we have set ourselves targets for 2022 and 2023. And that's what we are driving towards. That's in a nutshell of four minutes, five minutes, I guess, <laughs> The strategy of a bank that encompasses the the 40,000 people and 9 billion budget to realize this strategy and to run this strategy. Incredible. Uh, thank you for that overview. Very, very clearly stated. I like the 6S, 6S Flint framework, which uh, certainly clear, clarifies things tremendously. Uh, you, you talk about the scale of your organization. It is enormous. It is global. It is uh, very diverse in terms of the business that you do. And I'm curious, uh, in a global role as yours is... Um, how do you think about the balance between centralized uh, operations versus federated operations? Uh, the, the businesses you're in are very different. Uh, the customers that you serve are very different. And and I can, as I'm even hearing you peel back the onion on those six S's, um, having some kind of cognizance and proximity to the customers where the business is done surely is very important. Just as um, a lot of, there are several aspects of that where setting standards uh, um, are also very important. Talk a little bit about the push and pull between those, if you would. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And it's, uh, it comes down, uh, we call that sometimes the devil dilemma, where it's or completely run in anarchy, like everybody can do their own thing, or it's completely shared and standardized and centralized and nobody knows what's going on somewhere in that ivory tower or whatever it is that they call technology. Um, I strongly believe there are models in between. So let's, let's talk about those, those models a bit. Um, and before I go there, you can compare it to what the English say, different horses for different courses. So for certain business functions, you will always, as a CEO or a CFO, you want to have it standardized and centrally. I give you an example, general ledger. I give you an example, regulatory reporting. 
you don't want to have people creating their own data definitions and reports that go out to the Fed or the OCC without the scrutiny of having one data definition and making sure that everything that is needed to be reported is reported. So the different horse for that course would be a central function with central capabilities with a central data definition. Then you have things like um, if you have an outlet like commercial banking, where you have many different types of lending machines. Uh, we do lease financing, we do debt structuring, we do sheer structured, uh, structured finance and structured lending. Uh, we do capital markets for commercial and CIB clients. And when I start to sum it up, you already hear like, that sounds like all different products. And these are different products. And it makes no sense to my opinion as a, as a CIO or head of technology to say, we need to fit this all in one application because that, that is easily becoming a mashed potato where a beautiful potato was there for lease finance or a beautiful potato was there for lending for commercial clients. But because we need to have it all in one system, it only gets the common denominator in terms of features and not the special features that it needs for certain markets and certain products. So in that case, the, uh, the different horse for that course would be go for a more specified model. It's more standalone. It's for that business and it's fun. But then you talk about the applications. Let's go down to network and data centers. Everybody will agree it makes no sense to have separate data centers for the commercial bank versus the retail bank. So that's typically a shared utility that we all, all use. Network, exactly the same. Uh, when you talk about the virtual desktop, nobody is asking for, I want to have my virtual desktop. That's a central instance that is created with different personas and maybe different qualities for different roles. But the whole basic setup is shared and central. So again, I just want to touch upon this with a couple of examples rather than giving the precise operating model that we have in place. Uh, the same question could apply for buy and build that you often get as a head of technology. Do you want to buy everything? Do you want to build everything? I say, well, I'm not a totalist. Let's think about what is the need, what is the best solution available, and make the right choice case by case. Mm -hmm. Speaking, uh, just continue on that last vein, do you also bear in mind those areas that you think are strategic to the organization long-term versus you know, those that will never be, or, or perhaps a, you know, a scenario where you need uh, resources quickly in an area where there's a dearth of them currently, but you hope to grow them. Surely that must, must come into the equation as well. Absolutely. Uh, when, you, when you need to cover ground quickly, you don't start to specify a global system from the ground up. You go for the opportunity that is there. Absolutely. So yeah. it's circumstances, context, timing also drive the right decisions in that sense. Yeah. Talk a little about it, if you would, um, about how you and your organization work on, and I'll use a broad topic here, innovation, um, and how that translates into whether it's operational innovation, whether it's customer-facing innovation. Um, how, how is that shepherded in an organization like yours? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I, for sure, I can <laughs> predict to you that every organization has a different setup. And we have chosen for a setup that basically stands on three pillars, if I can say it like that. We have an innovation unit that sits in the digital and strategy uh, group, which is belonging to a peer of, of my and on the operating committee, Afer Williams. And that team is basically constantly looking for what is the next best experience for our customer? What is the next best feature that we need to develop? 
they also look a little bit further ahead, like three years, four years into the future and start to see what is coming and looking around the corner and making sure it's getting adopted. That team works in an integrated fashion with the best software engineers that we have that we dedicated to that team. So it's not like we have an innovation group and they do their own technology. It's not like IT is doing their own technology. We do it together. Then there's something uh, which is the second pillar, let's call it like that, is R&D on the technology side, where some of these people who are in the innovation unit think, well, that's a little bit over our heads. You know, IT, figure that out, please, for us. And and that level of uh, innovation, the R&D innovation, is something that is led by one of my directs. And we have based that upon uh, relationships and partnerships with research institutes like MIT, Stanford, uh, ITT. And if you if you want to, Peter, I can give a couple of examples of research cases that we are running at this moment. Please do. Yes, uh, thank you. So if you if you look at what we are doing is is really all around what I call the the magical cocktail of AI, ML, data, and compute. And those three things is like an old fashioned. It's, it's, it's something that if you bring it together very well, it will define the future of not only a bank, I guess, but for many other companies as well. Uh, AIML, what we are doing there is as a bank, we need to explain the outcomes of AI models. If you look at as a bank, if, if we get a lending request of a customer and we say yes or no, we need to be able why we said yes or why we said no. We cannot say, oh, there was the model and it ran it and we don't know it's a box of Pandora. Pandora. It's very opaque. And this was the outcome. We need to be able to explain it. With the, the vast advancements that are made on the AI ML, we are already in a phase, Peter, where we cannot, cannot explain the outcome of certain models. Mm-hmm. Now, we will not apply those models. But what we do want to do, we want to take advantage of those models. The research case that we built with MIT here is, can we create AI to explain AI? Because technology is known for every problem that we have in technology. We create new technology that solves that problem. So this is how we solve the problem of non-explainable AI by putting AI on top of it, by which it becomes explainable. That's just an example. Uh, another thing that we do on data, which is important, is the, the whole idea of big data, which is the biggest inefficiency in, in the industry, I believe. we. We pile up data and we keep on having more data because we run models against those data and those models are starting to become more and more complicated. And then we need to run a whole computer burst, burst, compute power burst to basically crunch that model through all the data. You could ask yourself, why don't we think about small data? And small data is really finding that smallest significant set of data that will bring you to the same outcome or synthetic data. Instead of all the production data that we use for this, can we do synthetic data and just fake data to come to the same outcome? This is something that we do also with one of those research institutes. And then last but not least, uh, compute and the the vast advancements we're making on compute power. Um, It's pretty exciting to live in a time where you and I will be able to say one day that we saw the, 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 the lorry and the horse of compute shifting into a Formula One car or an Indy car, if you're based here in the US. So that speed that is coming with quantum compute is, uh, you cannot express it in factors like 10 or 100 or millions. It's uh, 
out of the uh, expectation, basically. It's out of what we think is possible to be done. Some companies say it will be production ready by 2024, 25, 23. We said it doesn't matter when it's ready. We don't want to be the one that has regrets that we didn't do it from the start and that we weren't there if it becomes successful and production ready. So this is one of the other R&D bets that we are making, where we are looking at two models at the moment, trading algorithms, where we use compute power with AI on a quantum compute environment, in this case of MIT and IBM. And we also look at, uh, call it the cryptographic keys, because that's one of the biggest risks and dangers if uh, quantum comes alive, is that basically all, all our passwords that we have <laughs> will be crunched in a second. So, uh, because the, the you can do the whole bot thing and just run all different variations of a password in, in a few seconds or minutes. Yeah. Uh, that is something else that we are investing upon. Very interesting. Uh, when one thinks of innovation in the tech space, there certainly is a tremendous amount of venture capital, for example, that's being uh, that, that that's invested in the so-called fintechs. And I'm curious about how you think about the fintech landscape, the extent to which, uh, I mean, clearly to some extent in some, some individual aspects of your business, you've got some growing competition. I would imagine, though, in some cases, you also have some growing partnerships in a broader ecosystem that you can leverage as well. And how do you think uh, about that sort of Co-opetition, if you will, uh, between the fintechs and yourself. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a very natural partnership. Let's start there. Um, the fintechs are here because they had a great idea, often on a, a certain point, an aspect solution, a point solution for a uh, problem in the industry that created friction. Whatever that is, mortgage originations, peer-to-peer uh, -peer payments. And every uh, fintech created the best solution for that point problem. But they lack scale and they lack distribution. So then you look at the big banks where we have scale, we have the distribution. We don't always have that great idea for that point solution that we need to have. So when you start to merge the two, you start to see, wow, this is basically very natural what is happening, very organic. You need skill and distribution. We need a great idea. Let's work together and hash it out. In the, all the partnerships that I've been in in the last five, six years with fintechs, I've seen it's a steep learning curve on both sides. The large bank needs to get used to the fact that they release new code daily, where I already said it's 60 weeks. So that is the, the learning curve for the bank. Uh, but on the other side, we see the learning curve on especially cyber and cyber requirements on all and every fintech that we de dealt with. Um, we could show them how easy it was to do something with that application if you were a bad actor. So that is the learning curve, and that makes us both better. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm really convinced that without the fin fintechs, we still would be the kind of slow-moving large organizations not too concerned about competition and not too con concerned about what the consumer actually wants. And at the same time, without the big banks, the fintechs will be great ideas, nice hobbies, somewhere in the garage, but doesn't come to scale. Yeah, interesting. Um, as, Saul, as you and I are speaking today, uh, we're still in the throes of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic uh, consequences of that. Um, I'm curious, you, you spoke earlier about resilience and that being a key tenet or pillar of of. Uh, of what you and your organization drives, I have to imagine that to a much greater extent than you would have anticipated at the end of last year, that that's been put to the test. 
Um, yeah. Talk a bit about some of the lessons of this crisis and uh, perhaps some examples of the way the technology is has led to resilience in the business operation. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. To your point, nobody had this playbook for a global pandemic. Everybody had the, the local pandemic in, in certain countries or parts of the US, but not systemically global. Um, what we, what we have seen and where it's important to have your technology capabilities quickly in place is, of course, when you need to do business resiliency and you need to have uninterrupted banking operations, especially when the economic fallout starts to occur day one or day two of a crisis. So making sure that we were open all the time was as important as bringing people safely and let them work from home. So we had to scale up basically in a few weeks uh, up to 210,000 people working from home daily, which is still the case. We had to be able to shift over complete contact centers to working from home and the, the call center agents that are now uh, taking calls like, like myself from a home office or a home work environment. The other thing is that we had to make sure that the economy stayed open and wasn't too much impacted. So we had to facilitate PPP here in the US, the small business lending program. We had to make sure that all the stimulus payments that were hitting the bank accounts on, and I still remember the day, April 15. Peter, that's the only day that we celebrated that we didn't go down. This was the day that everybody in the morning started to check their banking accounts online to see is the stimulus payment already in. Mm. We saw a three times higher volume than peak volumes before. And not many, this is talking about scalability and our strategy. We changed the whole digital environment last year with not this scenario in mind, but with a scenario in mind that you always need to be prepared for what is highly Im improbable, so unlikely to happen. Uh, and this happened that we were one of the few banks that were unimpacted by that volume increase day one. That is another thing of resiliency. Uh, so it's business resiliency, but also the resiliency to the economy here in the US by making sure that we stayed open and that we were able to also participate in the stimulus programs offered by the government. I think that is a perspective that I never thought of before, that these two things would come together on the back of a global pandemic. Um, so that, that, that those are a few lessons learned. India is a different perspective. India, and especially uh, relying on a couple of third parties that are not always that mature on their resiliency side. So you will see across the industry that some parties struggled to have resiliency on their side, which we were able to deal with without impacts or something like that. But we have seen other banks struggling there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and uh as you reflect upon all these changes and this new way of working and, and the resilience ultimately of the business, um, the Wells Fargo business, what, what aspects of this do you think are the indelible marks, uh, that even once we reach hopefully sooner rather than later, some sort of uh, return to normalcy of some sort, what do you think are the, the learnings from this period that will remain, uh, that may mean new ways of doing business despite an ability perhaps to going back to, to do how, how we did in, in January or, or early February? Yeah, I think a few things. Uh, let's talk about the workplace itself. Nobody imagined that it would be possible to run the whole economy with a country like the US or a country like England in a full lockdown mm -hmm. or parts of the country in a full lockdown. 
So we are able to work from home. What I don't believe is that this will be the forever model that everybody will keep on working from home, that mixed model where everybody is talking about. I assume there's more acceptance of working from home and for working from home. And what we need to do as a technology team is just facilitating the mixed models where teams will be constructed from people who are in the office and people who work from home. If I look at uh, the, the, the other things that you could say that you take away from this is in a crisis like this, you need to take decisions fast. And we created a model, a construct that we call the cross-discipline decision room uh, in the middle of the crisis in the first few weeks, where we were able to hammer out difficult decisions that normally would have taken months. We were able to do it in hours because everybody understood the pressure we were under. Now, what you don't want to do is simulate that pressure every day because that's why it's called a crisis. It's not the norm. But what you do want to do is to keep that multifunctional construct, that decision room where people come together, they understand they need to come to a decision. And we take away again that notion of a handoff. Traditionally, we took decisions through a handoff model. First, a business leader said something, and then it went to IT, and then it went to legal, and then it went to compliance, instead of just coming together and say, let's agree on it here, right now, today. That's possible. So I guess that's the second thing. The third thing that we have to take away from this is that, especially in the US, the e-commerce growth has been tenfold compared to all the growth in the last nine years. So just let that sink in. It's been a steep curve this year. We have digitized as an industry, also as banks, in response to the COVID crisis. It's not always with the customer in mind. So what I think what we have to do is keep digitization, which is a great thing, make everything virtual so it's safe for the customer to do banking, but also do a step back and say, what we rolled out on the back of this crisis, is that customer focused or was it just in response to the crisis? If it's only a response, then I think you need to build out the feature set to such an extent that it's completely in line with what the customers need and not only in response to a, to a crisis. So I think those are a few things that I can share, things that will stay and remain. Uh, but you know what? I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what else will change and remain. Yeah, no, good, good answers. I appreciate each of those. Um, I also wanted to ask you, we've covered a number of trends that are rising and rising in your, your operation. Uh, I wonder if there are any others that as you look to the future that you would particularly uh, underscore as important or areas or topics of curiosity for you and your team. Yeah, I think uh, coming back to the topic of AI, um, there's something I want to share in terms of what we call human-centered AI. It's a partnership that we set up uh, with Stanford, Google, Amazon, Microsoft. And it's basically a, a, a collection of companies that have the same vision that if we don't watch out, AI becomes the kind of uh, thing that we saw happening in the 80s and the 90s with DNA re-engineering, where you could almost order the gender of your baby because we were able to you know, influence the DNA and the strings in such a way and we all said, oh, wait a minute, that's ethically not correct. We're not going that way. If you see at how fast Peter AI is evolving and all the things you and I don't know yet, but are already possible in, let's say, the, the laps of the largest and smallest AI firms, uh, we need to be very mindful of what we are doing 
and we need to put a kind of line in the sand of uh, AI is here to support mankind and, and humankind. It's not the other way around that humankind will be here one day just to support AI. The machine models are going so fast in self-training and self-learning that it's about to take decisions that if a human being was involved, we wouldn't take it because it was ethically not correct. But the algorithm doesn't know ethics. So I think that is one that has nothing to do with the banking industry per se, nothing to do with Wells Fargo, but it has to do with the responsibility that we feel, not only the leadership team of the bank, but also all my engineers, like we better, we better be on that discussion point with the governments, with regulators, with the industry to be clear on what we think is okay and where it starts to become not okay. Uh, that would be one. And I say that in relation to a trend that is specific to the banking industry, where you saw that in the old days, we were basically, you had to go to a branch to get something done, right? Then we said, you know what, Peter, we give you an app and you do it yourself, right? And you said, oh, that's fine. I can do it now myself. But what we start to see now with the newer, uh, the, the generations, let's say, that are getting used to full AI enabled type of uh, experiences they are not saying, I don't want to do it myself anymore. They are now saying, do it for me. And do it for me is a different concept where we basically use all the data that we have, you and myself. We apply all that logic and all that intelligence that we have about you and me, and we start to do things for you if you want us to do that. Mm -hmm. So opt-in models, opt-out models will come as well, but also a whole generation of new customers who will say, you know what, I don't want to deal with the bank because banking is not my hobby you just bank for me everything that is you know a concern for me do it in the best way possible do it with models that so if you look at that then suddenly it becomes very interesting to look at ai ml data quantum then it becomes very interesting to look at ethics and where do you draw the line and where do you say we do it for somebody but where can you not do it for someone where is it like ethically incorrect to do banking for someone very interesting indeed. Well, uh, Solvan Burden, a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for sharing some perspectives of what you and your team are working on, uh, the great resilience you're fostering, uh, some of insights into the areas of focus for, for your operation, for your customers. It's been a great conversation. Peter, it was all my pleasure. Thank you for your questions. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guest will be Fumbi Chima, a board member at Africa Prudential.